Yo, this is Br'er. I'm in the chair. I'm really excited about this podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. It's been really fun. This week we're talking to Jory Rose about mindfulness. I got really fascinated with this idea of living your life in mindfulness. What does it mean to be mindful? What does it mean to be more present every moment with your kids, with your family, with your life, with your job, with yourself? So talk to Jory about how to use mindfulness to get centered, stay focused, and chill out. Because that's what we want to do is chill the fuck out and just enjoy ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> so I am so excited to speak with you today, Jory. Um, I just wanted to like introduce you as a mindfulness educator and an author of three books, right? And including the the children's book, which my kids love because my daughter's a little bit squirmy. And it, it's about Squirmy the caterpillar um, who turns into a butterfly, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I love that. And, and you're also a coach, right? And you, uh, you founded your own uh, proprietary program called Journey Forward, which we're going to hear some, some about that. So yes. thank you for being here. It's great to have uh, you. Thanks for having me. It really is an honor. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. And I just want to start by opening up to what is mindfulness to you? The first time I heard the word mindfulness, it came from uh, reading Thich Nhat Hanh years ago, who I think was maybe one of the people bringing it to the Western world, this idea of mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you? In a nutshell, I think it's the answer to everything. (laughs) But what does it mean to me? It means to live with greater awareness. Bottom line, I define mindfulness as living with greater awareness, attention, and intention. And why is that important? Because so much of the time, we're not aware. We're living unconsciously. We're on autopilot. We're not paying attention to our habits, our patterns, our mindset, our reactions. And we are not living consciously. We're not intentional. We're going through the motions of the day and we're missing our lives. We are disconnected from ourselves. We are disconnected from our most important relationships. We aren't sure what we are feeling because we're believing our thoughts, which are not our truth. We don't know why we're doing what we're doing because we're not operating out of a deep set of values that we've learned through our own self-reflection and self-awareness to say what's important to me. And we're just missing it. And I literally, I think mindfulness is the answer to everything. No matter what's arising, it's fundamentally the ability to respond and not react, period. And you can only do that through self-awareness of building a muscle of recognizing, oh, I'm in reaction. Oh, I'm unconsciously showing up. Oh, I'm completely disconnected from myself. I'm living out of assumptions or judgments or fears and letting anxiety rule my life. and oh, wait, who am I? Like, how did I get here? (laughs) So it's awareness, attention, intention, being in the present moment, practicing gratitude, self-compassion, loving kindness. I think those are integral 
connecting with our breath is part of the root of it. Meditation is different than mindfulness. Many people mistakenly confuse them as the same practice and use the words interchangeably. And they'll say things like, oh, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to schedule mindfulness into my to-do list. Well, no, no, no. It's not a to-do item. Meditation is something you can add to your to-do list. That's an actual practice. But mindfulness is a way of being. It's a quality of presence. It's not something you add to your to-do list. It What's on your to-be list? How do you want to be in the world? How do you want to show up? What's that quality of presence you want to bring to yourself and to others with awareness, self-compassion, non-judgmental? You know, a, a traditional definition of mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn is being in the present moment intentionally without judgment. That's kind of how he sums it up. John Kabat-Zinn, like you said, Thich Nhat Hanh, is really responsible for creating this secular awareness of mindfulness in our Western world with the development of mindfulness-based stress reduction, taking these ancient contemplative practices into a modern medical setting, recognizing how we relate to whatever is arising in our body matters, and we can actually affect our own health in the most amazing cellular way by how we relate to it. Again, responding, not reacting, having compassion and gratitude versus resistance and judgment. But I struggle with John Kabat-Zinn's definition where he says non-judgmental. I don't know about you, Bear, but like I'm human and I have judgment. So as soon as the definition of something says non-judgmental and I have a judgment, I'll be like, oh, I can't do this. This isn't for me. That must be for those other special people who right. like have like this total Zen-like view of the world. And <laughs> okay, well... As a busy suburban mom. A little mom, too lofty, a little too yeah. far up. Yeah. So to me, compassion is the opposite of judgment. So why not have a definition that feels more attainable than like telling you what not to be? That was my long answer. That's what mindfulness is. I love it. I love it. I, I think about it as just removing all of the distractions that take you into the future. And in the past, you know, there's this idea that all of your worries and all of your anxiety only exist in the either the future or the past. You're either right. anxious about something that's going to come or you're feeling negatively about something that already happened. Yes. But really, if you kind of bring yourself into the present moment, none of that stuff is happening. And all, and all that really is happening is we live in this beautiful world and and you're breathing and you're there, you're here. You know? And even if, some of that worst case scenario is actually happening in the present moment with shit happens. So you're going to be faced with the things you didn't expect, the curveballs, the speed bumps, the roadblocks, all the things that you, your ego is going to say, but I didn't want that. I don't like this. Okay. Well, as long as you're breathing, you're already getting through it. And that's the key is because the more we are in resistance to the bigger our reaction is, the harder time we have to ride the waves of it. We can't accept it. People always say to me, to me, my clients will say, but Joy, how do I accept something I don't like? Okay, well, not accepting it doesn't make it go away. It only makes your reaction to it bigger, which makes it harder to get through. So, you know, some of these core foundations of mindfulness rooted in Buddhist meditation practice, some of these core foundations is non-attachment. Yeah, it, you know, expectations are the quickest path to suffering, and this this contemplative practice was cultivated in an effort to reduce our own suffering. Because, as the notion goes, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So, shit's gonna happen. 
the degree to which you are affected by it is within your control. You can't control what's arising, but you can control your response to it. And that's the magic of mindful awareness. And so practices or, or belief systems or mindsets of non-attachment, you know, uh, acceptance, being in the present moment, because to your very point, right? Our anxiety, our fear, our judgments, our depression, our challenges multiply tenfold when we ruminate into the past and we say, if only I could have X, Y, or Z. And then we go into the future and we say, what if? Mm -hmm. But the present moment is what is. It doesn't mean you have to like it. It just means you got to stop being in resistance to it. Because that's where the peace comes. That's where the exhale comes. Because when we're in struggle, we tend to hold our breath. Everything tenses. Right? We want to be able to say, okay, this sucks, and I'm already getting through it because you have a 100% success rate of getting through every single moment you never thought you could. The mere fact that you and I are here, anyone listening who's here listening has gotten through every single thing they never thought they could. But imagine the amount of time, energy, effort, and attention they spent focusing on, I can't get through this, which right. only compounded their suffering. I, 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 that's really interesting because that's something I wanted to talk about today a little bit was <clears throat> suffering, you know, pain that we go through, trauma, maybe that people go through, and how most of the breakthroughs that happen in people's lives sort of revolve around some sort of struggle, some sort of yeah. difficult thing they went through. You know, and, and it, it's like most of the time people, especially when it's a little further in the past, you would say, well, yeah, I never want to relive that again, but I wouldn't change it for anything because that's really what right me. That's really why I, I have so much gratitude now. That's why I have so much joy. That's why I have so much more love in my life or why I live every moment to the fullest because I did experience that that pain or that suffering. And um, so I wanted, I wanted to kind of get your take on or maybe an ex personal, either personal experience or maybe some experience, you know, that you've had where mindfulness has really helped um, somebody, maybe yourself, go through like a deep sort of suffering. Yeah. Amount. On Let, the there, there, there's so much I could literally talk for the next three hours about this one question. So I'll try to be succinct to the best that I can. But let me first start off by saying there's a real tendency in our culture these days to want to get through that suffering really, really quickly. And it's like, we just want to get to the rainbow and forget about the storm. And we think, oh, I just need to think good thoughts, positive vibes, good, you know, good thoughts only. And that's actually not going to reduce the suffering because we've got to get through the work to actually reap the reward of greater awareness or the insight or the, the lesson you were here to learn. Otherwise, it's spiritual bypassing. It's literally just like, oh, I'm going to bypass the pain and just get to the benefit of the lesson. But the truth is, the lesson is actually cultivating the awareness and accessing the tools in the moment. So, you know, one of the books that I've written is on gratitude, and we'll get back to the main question, but I wanted to say this in this point of suffering. The gratitude for what am I here to learn right now? This sucks, I hate it, and I'm really grateful I'm already getting through it. I'm really grateful for the lessons I'm learning no matter how painful it is because I know it's gonna 
all unfold in some divine timing that I don't see yet, but if I have faith that I'm here on this path that's unfolding and I trust, then I can shift that suffering, just turn the knob, the knob down just a little bit. We're not saying take it away, but the goal or intent, I'm not like the word goal, the intention is to just turn the volume down a little bit, just so we have a little bit more ease through the pain. So before getting to a couple of personal examples, I want to say one more thing that my clients love this visual. I like visuals. And this is, again, a Buddhist notion, but it's the idea of the first dart and the second dart. The first dart is just what life throws at you. It's just life. Change, death, destruction, suffering, pain, hardship. That's just part of the human experience. And we know that self-compassion, one of the components of self-compassion is common humanity. So you're unique, but your problems are not. You're not the first one who's ever felt this, despite what you may think. We're all human. It's just part of being human. The second dart and every subsequent dart thereafter are the ones that we throw at ourselves. It's the second darts that cause our suffering. It's the things like, why is this happening? I don't like this. Why me? Why now? Why is it easier for other people? It's the reactions, the judgments that actually spiral it into much bigger. If we can just say this is a first dart and it sucks and that's okay and I'm human and I've got tools I can draw upon, but we've got to build the muscle to access the tools. Like that's the meditation piece. So for me, thank God I developed these practices before I went through my divorce. I've been divorced about eight and a half years already. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever been through. I was with my ex-husband since I was 13 years old and literally knew no different and had never been on my own, lived alone, dated, like you name it. Like I had no idea who I was outside that role of my name being intertwined with his. And I had this awakening in my early thirties to say, who am I? How did I get here? Cause I'd been living unconsciously, just what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. So my, I call it my one third life crisis because I was too young to be midlife. So definitely only at least a third and slowed down, started practicing these practices, delved very deeply into it in a professional and personal manner. But when I finally got divorced, which was my choice, so I brought on a lot of my own suffering, which we tend to do sometimes and then wonder why did I do that? Because it's what you need to go through. One of the ways to reduce our suffering is to simply name what's arising. This is backed by neuroscience. We've got our amygdala in the brain, which is our emotional alarm. And when we can simply name what's arising, even as simple as, this is really hard right now. What we do is we create some space between whatever is arising and who we are as humans, our, our self, capital S. And in that space, it's like the Viktor Frankl quote, right? Between stimulus and response, there's space, and in the space lies freedom. When we name what's arising, it slows down our reaction to it. And I did that constantly during my divorce and the time period thereafter. So it would look like me saying, this is what fear feels like. And I just let it be okay to be afraid right now without judging it, resisting it, shaming myself that I shouldn't be feeling this way. It was a perfectly natural response to a difficult situation. 
this is what sadness feels like. Can I just lean into the sadness? Because the irony is the more you lean into it, it dissipates a little bit quicker. It's actually when you resist it that it grows, which is despite what we think that we want to do. So without that practice, my suffering, my self-induced suffering by creating massive change would have skyrocketed. But I was able to ground and root myself in the presence, in my body, allowing emotions to exist, allowing thoughts to not be my truth, trusting the intuition that led me down this path, breathing, because when we breathe, going to activate the calming part of our brain because we're in we're in stress mode we're in fight flight freeze and we're in reaction everything is harder that was a game changer for me absolute mm -hmm. game changer just naming what was arising but how to have self-awareness even know what it was i was feeling right yeah uh, a second way that this dramatically changed my life was in how i raised my girls and they're now almost 17 and 19. I've got a junior in high school and a freshman in college. Oh my gosh. And they were pretty young when I started practicing these tools. And as the youngest child in my family, I often felt like my voice wasn't heard. So as a mom, I'm like, ooh, my voice can be heard now. And I was never like a yeller per se, but I would get frustrated. I would raise my voice. I used to think that that was the way to get them to do what I wanted until I realized, no, not, not at all. And I have this one memory. They must have been like seven and nine, maybe around that. And my ex-husband, I was still married at the time. He used to work late. So I felt like I was a single mom even when married and it was probably eight o'clock at night and mama was ready to clock out. <laughs> I was kind of done for the day. And I was trying to get them in the bath and they just weren't getting in the bath and every single damn button of mine was being pushed. And of course I over-personalized it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're not listening to me. And I started to raise my voice to get them in the bath, but I had like this meta awareness and like, I kind of saw myself doing the very opposite of what was going to be helpful. And I started to raise my voice and I caught myself and I said, literally verbatim, I said, you know what guys? I'm really frustrated. Again, in this tone of voice, compassion, not judgment. Judgment puts you right back into the spiral of reactivity. Compassion gets you out. And I named it. You guys, I'm like really frustrated. So you know what? I'm going to take a minute and just breathe. And they're all being wily and squirrely. And I, I just paused. And in front of them, I regulated my nervous system, which is all meditation does. And I took a few deep breaths. My breath shifted their energy because that's how it works. And I'm like, okay, you guys, what do we need to do to get in the bath? And guess what? They got in the bath. So my parenting, literally, I have two teenagers. We have never yelled at each other. I have a household in which we've never, ever yelled at each other. I have two teenage daughters in which one of them, we have gotten into an argument once. And my older one, I think maybe three times in their lives. That's not because they're perfect or I'm perfect. It's because we're responding and not reacting to each other, period. It's been a game changer.
That's amazing. Yeah, I, well, I did want to get into the parenting thing with you a little bit too, because, and I know that 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 sort of suffering question opens up a a super Pandora's box that we can go down, and maybe we can come back to that if we have time. But I wanted to um, just acknowledge you too for how you've helped me with my parenting, and um, you had this. I don't I don't even remember how I found out it was just like a little thing you mentioned to me one day you're like oh we have this book of consequences that I created with my daughter where she sort of created her own consequences for the things that she might do like oh well when you do this you know what do you think should be the consequence and then you sort of have a book of rules that you can both go to I thought that was so cool to empower um, your daughter with those choices and and I've been practicing that as well. Um, so I, I, I would love to share more of the context of that because this is one of the most radical approaches to discipline that it freaks parents out because it feels like they're giving up control when in reality, you're gaining more control by teaching your children agency and you're teaching them the practice of natural consequences. And parents don't understand that their goal is to raise well-adjusted, secure adults who can go off into the world confident in their ability to make discerning choices based on their value set. The last thing you actually want is an overly compliant child, despite what all you parents out there may think. An overly compliant child does not know how to think for themselves. And one of the context of this was, I remember, I wish I would have saved it. And I've looked for it and I, just know that it existed somewhere in the world. So I know I'm not making it up, but even if I did make it up, it's still a great theory. But I remember reading an article when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter. So somewhat 20 years ago that talked about kids who were more likely to succumb to peer pressure. Mm. Kids who were more likely to succumb to peer pressure as teenagers were those who always did what their parents said because they are then in a habit of doing what people tell them to do. And they have not built the muscle of thinking for themselves of how to make a choice. So to back up the consequence book, it's contact. When my kids were little, everything was about giving them choices. But like, mm -hmm. as the mom, I kind of manipulated the options, right? So it was to give them practice, building that muscle of thinking for themselves. What do I want? How do I figure this out to make a choice? So instead but of saying broccoli or Brussels sprouts, instead, right, <laughs> instead it, right? Of, it's it, it's not like yeah. you know what do you want to eat or oh, I want you're gonna give them well, chocolate or right. right. So, but like my example is if I were to say to my kid, "Do you want to wear a jacket when we leave?" No, I don't. Okay, but it's cold out, so I know they need a jacket. So instead of saying, "Do you want to wear a jacket?" which so the idea here is like don't really ask yes no questions because when they say no, you can't get pissed at them because you gave them the option of no. So ask the question that you really want an answer to, which goes for couples and partners and don't ask the questions you don't want the answer to. But instead of saying, do you want to wear a jacket? It's, hey, do you want to wear this red sweater or blue sweater? You pick. So even when my daughter was really young, she used to be very particular about picking out her clothes. But even though she wanted to pick it out, she had trouble deciding what to pick out. So it would have been much easier on my part to just say, hey, Cammie, why don't you wear this? Instead, I would respond like a broken record of, 
let's decide or let, let's figure out the process in which you're able to decide what you want to wear. Like, what do we need to know? Let's look out the window. Let's check the weather, walk out the front door. This is before phones, you know, at that time was so easy to say, like, what's the weather? Look at your clothes. Do you want to wear a skirt? Do you want to wear pants? Like going, teaching them the steps of how to make a decision. Most parents don't do that because it takes more time, energy, and effort on the parents' part. And they're like, just get it done. I don't have time for this. Well, guess what? You're going to have a long-term consequence later. If you've made all the decisions for your kids and now they're 17 and they don't know the first thing about how to do laundry, do a dish, put gas in the car, go food shopping, let alone apply for college or leave the house, right? Like this is what we need to prepare them for. So I also had my a daughter when she was young, there was nothing that I could take away, no consequence that seemed to matter. In an effort to stop negative behavior in the moment, which is mostly what parents want to do, just stop negative behavior in the moment. Stop the tantrums, stop the arguing, the hitting your sister, talking back. But most parents don't actually consider the bigger picture. And I was all about the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is not just stopping negative behavior in the moment, but more importantly, how to prevent it from happening in the future. That's the bigger picture we're trying to get to, but most parents don't have the consistency and follow through and they give in to the tantrums and then wonder why their kids aren't behaving. Well, it's you, not them. They've, you've given them permission. Self-compassion, not judgment, but just know you're doing that. <laughs> yeah. So having nothing that I could take away made me feel powerless because nothing was really stopping negative behavior in the moment and nothing was easily preventing it from occurring in the future. And timeouts, teaches them nothing. What's a five-year-old going to do when sitting in the corner? Like, what would you do as an adult? You sit there and be like, this person is so mean. I can't believe they did this to me. You would not have the ability to self-reflect right. at five years old to say, right. what did I, right? Why did I so, end up in the corner? Yeah. Right. All I know is I don't like this. I'm now in resistance to the person who put me in here. Yeah. That's a five-year-old brain. That's a 10-year-old brain. That's a 15-year-old brain. Right. So again, what are the ways we can consciously teach them how to think? So the very first step of this is the parents have to have a set of house rules. They can be pretty broad, pretty basic, no lying, no hurting each other, no damaging property, I mean, whatever your basic house rules are. And then you got to explain the rules very clearly to the kids. And I actually had it put up somewhere in the house. So like, even though they may not be able to read very well, like I could point, this was our house rule. The first time they break a rule, it's kind of a gimme because they've got to learn a lesson. Mm -hmm. But we had a notebook that when my daughter just left for college a few months ago, we actually found in her room. And let me tell you, Bear, it was hilarious to read. <laughs> hilarious. But we called it the consequence book. And there are three things that would happen when she broke a rule. So the first one, true story, she lied about brushing her teeth. Okay, so that fit under the category of no lying. Well, she used to lie about stupid shit, I think, just to like, you know, kids like to see what they can get away with, pushing boundaries, individuation. I get it. So she lies about brushing her teeth. I said, okay, Ari, well, you know, you, you broke the rule about lying. Let's get the consequence book out. And there's three things that get written down. The first one is, what did you do wrong? I lied about brushing my teeth. And I, at first, I would have to write it because she was too young. Second thing we would write down is, 
what could you have done differently? Okay, well, you could either have brushed your teeth or you could have not lied about not brushing your teeth, right? So you're giving insight to the behavior that would not have been breaking the rule. But the radical part was number three. If you lie again, because lying was the house rule, brushing the teeth was just the details. If you were to lie again, what is the consequence? And she had to pick the consequence. And at first she was like, I can't chew gum for three days. And I'm like, um, yeah, that's not really a consequence. I had to approve it, but she had to come up with it. So she said, I get my eye touch taken away for five days. Okay, fair enough. Sure enough, that first one was a gimme. Well, sure enough, she was going to lie again because she was five. This is what she did. She was learning. Here's the key, though. The second time she did it, two major things happened. I wasn't pissed. She didn't break my rule. She broke her own commitment to herself. So rather than me getting reactive, angry, or pissed about it, I was like, oh, man, that's a bummer. I was really rooting for you. All right. Go get the consequence book and tell me what you said would happen if you lied again. She very like soaked, walked over, got the book and said, it says I got my eye touch taken away. Oh man, that's really a bummer, huh? Okay, Ari, well, who got you in trouble here, me or you? Well, I didn't know me. So this wasn't about inducing shame. Mm -hmm. It's teaching accountability. Your actions have natural consequences. You couldn't lie at school or at work, or at dance class, or at religious school, like, there's natural structure in the world, and I'm simply trying to teach it to you. Barrett, this was the most effective thing. My kid, who had no remorse, developed the strongest superego around not wanting to do something wrong, to the point where it was such a well-established conversation that probably by the time, we don't have to do it very often, I mean, he wasn't a bad kid, quote-unquote, but like, it was consistent. This is how we handled it. Mm -hmm. And it alleviated the arguing or the yelling because I was on her side. I was her guide. Yeah. I wasn't taking it personally. I'm supporting her and teaching her, right? So yeah. this then it became such a well-established conversation that it became a verbal to the point where it didn't even matter anymore. So much so that like as they got much older. I wanted to teach them because I got divorced and I had a little bit firmer rules than their dad's house. I wanted them to know you are new, you no matter where you go. So just because at home you don't text after 9 p.m. doesn't mean you got to go to dad's and go, I'm like, you know, it's no, you are you no matter where you go. So it didn't matter what his rules were because they had developed such a strong sense of what felt good and in alignment with making good choices. Yeah. Not always what I thought was a good choice, but like really developing their inner system. Mm -hmm. That's great. And my, my younger one just learned by proxy. She never had to have a consequence book because she just learned whatever Ari did, don't do, and I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cammy never had to have one. It was hilarious, but it has been the most effective tool I love that. In discipline, because that is the number one complaint I hear from parents is I can't discipline my kid. Yeah. Well, you're, you're likely getting mad at them and shaming them into submission and yelling at them, role modeling the very opposite thing you want them to be doing. Right. Right. And, 
And one of my favorite analogies that I give parents, and I do a lot of parenting talks, and I love when I get parents to cry in the audience. <laughs> because I love that I see that I've tugged at their heartstrings to have the self-awareness to say, no wonder it's not working. I can do it different. But the well, analogy it's, it's painful too. It hurt. It's sort of it's painful to the parent. You know, you feel that when you react or you you, you know, get upset at your child and you realize they, well, you just didn't give them the right guidance to make the right decision, just like you're saying. Yeah. But in the moment, you, yeah, you take it personally and it's painful to a parent because you know, you walk it's away. So from, hard. Yeah. You walk away from that experience just feeling like, oh, that, that sucked. Like, what did I just do? Like, you know, yeah. and you, you really can't take back those moments. You can't take back that moment of like when you, lose your temper, you get upset at, at your kid. Um, you can't take that back, you know? And so that's, you can make a repair, but you can repair. You know, yeah. You can do your best to hate, you know, or let them know or be vulnerable or show that vulnerability. But yeah, I, I want there, there's, to... a, there's an analogy that I give and I came up with this years ago and I have to say, I think it's brilliant, but it be the 911 operator. Okay, so you've got some emergency. God forbid your house is on fire. You call 911 and you're screaming into the phone. Oh, you're, you're having a full-on temper tantrum, for lack of a better word, right? What does a 911 operator do? They stay calm. Mm -hmm. They get you to breathe. Could you imagine if the 911 operator reacted to you in a bigger or stronger intensity in which you called? What would that do to your nervous system? It would go through the roof. So when a kid's having a temper tantrum and the parents get mad at them, it is the same thing as a 911 operator yelling at the person who's calling in with some emergency. Yeah. And then we wonder why we can't calm the kid down because we're yelling at them when their nervous system is out of whack. So to be the 911 operator is to stay calm because the 911 operator, when they stay calm, the person on the other end of the phone who doesn't even see them by that mere presence of being calm, calms the other person down. Yeah. Now, you can only build a muscle of being calm in face of emergency if you build a muscle for being calm outside of an emergency. Right. That's where I, the I practice to, comes. That's the practice. That's meditation that builds the muscle for mindfulness. Mindfulness is taking the meditation off the cushion, right? Yeah. I, I, I used to teach mindfulness in the schools, and I did that for over four years, and I asked a group at every classroom, kindergarten through sixth grade, if you're breathing from the moment you're born until the moment you die, why should we practice breathing? Because you're already doing it. Like, why do we need to practice this? Because being at a school, I couldn't call it meditation. I called it mindful breathing because that's all we're really doing. So this one little girl, she was nine, third grade. And she said, I imagine we practice breathing for the same reason we have a fire drill. She said, we have a fire drill, so we know what to do in case of an emergency. And I imagine that we have a, we practice our breathing, so we know how to use it when we need it. Like, Bear, I was in tears. This girl nailed it. We practice our breathing, so we know how to use it when we need it. We can't be the 911 operator when our kid's having a tantrum. If we've never practiced breathing, when we yeah. don't have a stimulus that causes a reaction. Right. Yeah, I love that. That's so important. And I was just reading this book. Um, I think I shared it with you the other day, too. Uh, the, this book of um, the boy who was raised by dogs. I think it's Dr. Bruce Perry. It's, it's such a powerful 
story. This guy's uh, he's he's kind of an angel uh, with how he's sort of changed the world's view on neurology and and the kind of childhood brain development. But one of the things he talks about, which is common knowledge now, is this this thing of mirror neurons, where Mm -hmm. if you you know, especially with babies and like really little kids, they kind of automatically mirror you, which is you know you you see it. Um, you know, I think my my oldest daughter one time she was like three years old and uh we were staying at my friend's beach house and he came in in the morning and she was you know just kind of talking and she said something like hey bro or she's like good morning bro (laughs) you know (laughs) it was like the funniest thing and we you know it's you realize yeah they they mirror everything that you're saying that how we talk you know we say Mm -hmm. kids are sponges but even more than sponges for our our ver you know what our language they're sponges for even our emotions how we feel how we act mm-hmm. facial expressions you know how our eyes maybe dart around or how we are calm so exactly what you're saying like being really calm is gonna it's gonna make that happen with them they're gonna get calmer emotions are contagious right yeah. and we we pick up on all those subtleties and then we wonder oh wait why, why doesn't my kid want to talk to me? Well, if you've given off an impression every time they come to you, you're mad at them, guess what they're going to learn? Right. You're not a safe person to talk to. And in fact, I have a really good example of that if I can share. Um, I had a friend who I was in play group with when my kids were babies. Her, Our oldest are like two weeks apart and our youngest are three weeks apart. So I knew them from a very, 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 very young age and watched these kids grow up. And I remember the oldest one had a really difficult time sharing and it caused a lot of problems with her sister and in the play group and with friends. And it was really contentious, like stubbornness that the mom didn't always handle very well. So she, I remember she called me one day and over the weekend, the family had gone out for a family walk with the dog. The older one was holding the dog's leash and the younger one wanted to turn. Total like normal Sunday afternoon family outing, right? Well, the older one didn't want to give up the leash and proceeded to have a full-blown tantrum. To which the mother said, I don't like you when you're acting like this. I can't be around you when you're behaving this way. I'm going to walk over here. And when you calm down, I'll come back. Not horrible parenting. A frustrated mom in the moment of can't be around this tantrum behavior, right? Like not horrible parenting, pretty probably more typical than not. But she said to me, well, what do you think? I said, well, do you want me just to listen or do you want my feedback? She says, no, I want your feedback. I said, you just told your kid you don't like her when she has emotions she doesn't know how to get through. You just told her you don't want to be around her when you've never otherwise taught her how to get through those hard emotions. And you've actually abandoned her when what she needs is help and support. She's nine. What do you think is going to happen when she's 15? Well, guess what? This girl is 19 now. And the relationship between her and her daughter is horrible to the point where when they went to go visit and surprise her at college, she ran straight to her dad to give a hug and didn't turn to her mom. Now, that's an extreme example. However, these things have impact, right? Our kids are not born into the world knowing how to regulate their emotions because most adults don't know how to regulate their emotions. So when we shame and judge and dismiss and abandon, that causes a rupture in the trust of, wait, but you're supposed to be my parent who I'm here to Im- implicitly trust 
And when you abandon me and say, I don't like you when you're like this, I'm walking away versus, wow, this is really hard for you to get through. How can I support you through this? Mm -hmm. Let me just help, you know, you know what? We're both really overwhelmed. This is really hard. Let's just start by taking a deep breath. And if the kid doesn't want to breathe, because most kids like roll their eyes and like, I don't want to breathe. Fine. You know what? You don't have to, but you know what? I'm going to. Because you got to shift the nervous system. It's all about the nervous system to ability to respond, not react. Right? Mindfulness meditation, ancient contemplative practices, neuroscience tells us what's happening. We got to regulate the nervous system because here's what happens. Our emotional brain is in the center part of our brain. Our executive functioning is the front part of our brain, which by the way, is not formed till mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Why teenagers make stupid choices. But our executive functioning is our logic, reason, rationality, decision-making, clear thinking, language, communication, learning and retaining information. Well, guess what? When the emotional brain is activated, it literally shuts down all that executive functioning. So it's like this four-lane open road, which you're not activated, you can access all those tools, but when the emotional brain takes over, it's like a one-lane country with traffic. You just can't access the tool. So if you want to have any ounce of reasonable conversation, calming down, understanding the lesson, getting through the apology, whatever it is, none of that can actually occur because that part of the brain cannot be accessed until yeah. you quiet down the emotional brain, which is through breathing and naming it. Because science shows when you name it, that amygdala calms down, which literally it's like when that amygdala fires off, that emotional alarm, it's like all of our Wi-Fi goes offline. You wow. just can't get online. And people don't understand this. They think, oh, but I should be able to push through. No, your brain literally cannot push through when your emotions are activated. So the number one goal, regulate the nervous system. And the more you practice that through meditation, the easier it is to access in the moment, like that girl said when she was nine, brilliant, right? Yeah, I love I love that. That is That's really powerful. Um, I just want to take all that in, you know? I mean, that's as a parent, I think it's really, uh, it's, it's really powerful. Um, I, I do that a bit with my daughter, you know, like I'll say something like, okay, uh, I'm feeling like I'm going to get upset now. So let's, what can we do for me not to get upset? (laughs) And that's your work, right? You know, that's not her uh, responsibility. And the more you can own that, you how do I want to say it? Well, I say I things like, I don't want to get upset. I really don't. I don't, I, this is the last thing I want to do. I don't want to be upset, you know? So you do have to own it, own your own reaction or your own emotional response. But I like this idea that it is our nervous system. So if I can just sort of go, okay, you know what? I'm going to just quickly rewire my nervous system right now or, or do kind of a reboot of my nervous system because I can feel myself getting tense. I can feel that it flaring up or something. We have that physiology that tells us what's happening, right? That's yeah. the fight, flight, freeze being activated. Yeah. I'm going to be a bit nuanced in one of the things you just said, because I'm going to just highlight the, the subtlety of it. Even by saying, I don't want to be angry, doesn't allow for the anger that's natural. So mm-hmm. anger isn't a problem. It's reacting in anger oh, that you. is the problem. Yeah. So it, we also want to be able to teach that our kid, to our kids that 
whatever they're experiencing as a natural, normal emotion. If I always it's say- It's okay to be upset or it's okay to be angry. I don't want to react in anger is react. a very different right. statement than I don't want to be angry. Like no one wants to be angry, but if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, we have different emotions at the control panel of our brain and they all take their turn, right? They have a role, like anger informs us just like fear informs us, just like sadness informs us, right? You can't know the suffering without the joy or the joy without the suffering, right? Mm -hmm. All of our emotions are informants, but it's what we do with them that impacts our experience of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I probably learned a lot of stuff at a really young age that I still am unable to unlearn. Welcome to the club <laughs> of being human, Bear. Welcome to the club. So, of being uh, we all did. You know, yeah. Isn't meditation uh, the process of unlearning? Through that. <laughs> I, Remembering? I, I keep thinking of this sort of, this, I don't know if this is um, a little outside of your realm, but I keep thinking of this kind of like dis, disassociation uh, effect that happens. Like we we talk a lot about fight or flight, you know, because that's, one emotional response that you get to like sort of trauma or if you're fighting or you're literally, you know, uh, you get that anx anxious anxiety, um, what do they call it? Uh, like hyper emotional, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another reaction that can happen where it's almost like the opposite that can happen with like extreme pain or other trauma. Where we you dissociate, we turn away. Yeah, you, you shut down and then... You can almost have this feeling of like seeing yourself from the outside of yourself and like you're not you're no longer yourself. And I wonder, I mean, on a certain level, when you're meditating, right, you want to turn that observation mind on so that you're just like observing yourself exactly how you are. And sometimes I feel myself like having that almost a disassociation feeling, like where I'm almost like floating outside of myself mm -hmm. and observing myself. And I wonder if that's an old, um, an old way. I mean, I think for me, I, one of the hardest things I went through in my life, I, I had a uh, Lyme's disease and I didn't, um, I didn't get diagnosed for a little while and actually it got misdiagnosed. And I had somebody told, tell me that I had this, uh, degenerative disease and that I was going to die, uh, this like horrible death. And it was like this That's horrible. Yeah, it was it was horrible. It was yeah, I was I spent like a week of my life just thinking, okay, my my spine is going to fuse together. I'm not going to be able to walk. And this and my and uh, my wife at the time was pregnant with our first, with my first daughter and um and I uh I was just imagining my life where I was going to slowly go into a wheelchair and then die by the time she was like 3 years old. And that was like so I'm like living in this future reality where I was dying and I was in a ton of pain because it was just a very painful uh, disease for me. It's it's different. The Lyme disease can be different for everybody. For me, it was very painful. Um, so I was just in like this excruciating nonstop everyday pain. And um, it was horrible. It was absolutely. But I think I, I saw myself kind of like I started to almost like disassociate in a way like I was like floating away from myself or I would have these things where I would just this was how I dealt with the pain mm -hmm. and I think I don't know if that was like at the time I was like oh I'm I'm doing an out-of-body spiritual experience but I I don't know if I was doing that or if I was really just 
turn. It might have been something helpful to tell yourself that as a strategy. Oftentimes, disassociation is a strategy to self-protect from pain. Right. right. If you think of like someone in an abuse situation, like it's easier to step out of their body than to be in their body because it's too painful. The mind can't comprehend. Right. You can't even make sense of it. I've had experience with people who. In the middle of an argument, it's like they're not even there. Just it's like they down. have to t- shut down and turn away in an effort to self-protect because the nervous system can't tolerate the distress. Right. So if we if we do a process of self-awareness with observation, with compassion and awareness, right, where we are in that observer state and we're noticing this is really painful, I'm experiencing the pain, I'm feeling the pain and I'm breathing through the pain, that's very different than I'm ignoring, I'm ignoring the, I can't speak, I'm ignoring the pain, pretending it doesn't exist. So I'm going to shut it down, turn away and ignore it. Mm-hmm. So if we recognize that the dissociation is simply a strategy of self-protection, yeah, but it may not be helpful because again, it's like that spiritual bypassing I talked about in the beginning. We've got to go through it right, to get to the other side. If we skirt around it, it's all still there. Right. Yeah. The, the, the moment may pass, but we actually haven't built any muscle of resilience or compassion or awareness or tools to say okay when this pain arises again because it will to some extent because i'm human Mm -hmm. what is the strategy and toolbox i can draw upon that is helpful that keeps me connected to me yeah because the dissociation disconnects us right and then the implication is when we disconnect from ourselves, we disconnect from others. And then it's like, then we role model that, right? I mean, it's a whole ripple. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And I, I think that was something for me that I, I personally struggle with a little bit is that shutdown. And, and I think it might've happened early on in my life that I sort of saw myself apart from myself in a way, like I almost decided that I was here and then I was also here and that this part of me didn't really matter or yeah. something and so I well, kinda, and it can be confusing it, it's it that almost sounds like I'm bipolar I don't think I'm bipolar but I just you know it's it's sort of this yeah. technique that I think I uh, developed to deal with like you said distressful situations and um, so it's helpful until it's no longer helpful is my yeah point. well right? it's, like maybe it was something it was it was just a way to deal with it but what perhaps really, it was what really, in the changed, moment. what really changed and I f- eventually found out I had Lyme's disease which was actually a huge relief and then I uh I got the medic medicine and, and that started to help but what actually really changed it for me was when I was able to focus on the pain and just relax and I was and that's what really ch- it's I, I I realized I wasn't relaxed I was like this you know tensing like mm-hmm. and so I just I needed to just relax that. And the more I relaxed, I could feel the pain just kind of dissolving a little bit more, you know, and dissolving and dissolving. And so that was, that became my process, that my process uh, for getting and, the experience. But, uh, and, and that's really powerful. And it, it's my intention to do a TED talk and it's going to be titled, it's not about the thing, it's how you relate to the thing. Yeah. Because that is true of anything. When you relate to whatever's arising in resistance, anger, fear, reaction, anxiety, dissociation, 
it impacts your experience of whatever it is that's arising, right? Yeah. When you can respond to it with awareness, self-compassion, presence, self-love, acceptance, all the things, it just, it gets smaller. But here's, I just want to add one more thing because you brought up physical health. Do you know what the word telomeres, or do you know the word telomeres? Do you know what telomeres are? Mm-mm. So think of your shoelaces, the little plastic aglet at the end of your shoelace, okay? Those are like our telomeres on the end of our DNA strands. And they're these little protective sheath proteins that prevent our DNA from fraying, just like without a little piece of plastic, your shoelace would fray, right? As we age, our telomeres shorten. As our telomeres shorten, our cells don't regenerate, which is why we have an aging process because our cells are slowly not regenerating. Our onset of aging spans anywhere between 50 and 80, 80 depending on genetics, but also your biosocial, cultural, so spiritual health, right? It has been found that through practices like mindfulness and meditation, your telomeres can lengthen again. It used to only believe that telomeres went one direction. They got shorter, which mm. meant you, you aged. You aged. But literally, these tools that I'm describing literally can lengthen your telomeres, which means you are literally changing your body on a cellular level. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's other factors, right? You got to have the health and the diet yeah, and the exercise and, yeah. and all the things. But like fundamentally, we have the power to improve our own health by how we are relating to our own bodies, our thoughts and our emotions and our physical pain. Well, I think we don't we don't take into account how much our nervous system affects like when we have those reactions. And we we live in a high stress world. I mean, everybody's stressed out all the time. And and uh, a, a couple of things we didn't even get to, which I think we're going to probably run out of time here, but is are, are just you know, distractions, you know, right? How much distraction, especially digital in the digital age, yes. distractions, too much information, trying to take in too much information, um, feeling that, always feeling compelled to like, you have to be amazing. You know, we sort of have this mindset of like, everybody's amazing. Well, if everybody was extraordinary, then nobody would be extraordinary kind of, you know, and so just accepting what is, um, yeah. accepting who you are, accepting the moment, being in the moment, allowing for that. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's an interesting time that puts a lot of pressure, especially on, oh, yeah. on the youth, but a- a- everybody, we all feel this kind of pressure to be something bigger, do something more, whatever it is. And, um, and I think that pressure is, is quite literally, you know, short shortening our telomeres. <laughs> I mean, uh, when we, I mean, you know, chronic stress will do that. Yeah, chronic. You stress. said earlier, like when you're tense, right? So when we are in a constant state of distress and our fight, flight, freeze is activated, that's our brain perceiving some real or perceived threat, and that's the key I want to say here. Our brain has a little flaw in the way it was designed, right? So when we were cavemen, you saw a bear in the cave. The brain went into protection mode and and released hormones and produced physiological effects to allow you to run or fight the bear, okay? Problem is, the brain does not know the difference between a bear 
I like that I'm looking at you and saying bear. The brain does not know the difference between, between a bear in the cave, between, yeah, between a bear in the cave, or a shadow that you perceive as a bear. Or you the can, imagination, even. As, it, that's what I'm saying. You perceive it. Yeah. So it is a real or perceived threat. Right. So in today's world, to like put it into that back to neuroscience terms, the perceived threat of us not being enough, of us being in comparison mind, of us having to live up to some expectation, it's a perceived threat to our own safety and security. So what gets activated is our fight, flight, freeze, which means our body produces this physiological response to yeah. keep us safe, but we don't know how to relax it because we're constantly being thrown images, comparisons, judgments, right? All of the things we need to be able to recognize, like, that's just my brain doing what my brain does, which is going to be distracted, go into comparison, feel not enough. Okay. Is that true? No, it's just a thought that I'm not enough. My action not enough. Well, says who? By what standard? Stop shooting on yourself, right? Like all yeah. of the things. But when we stay in that chronic stress, that's what shortens our telomeres. We get earlier onset of aging. We get more autoimmune yeah. disease. We get, you know, intolerances to food. Like, yeah. Relation. I mean, like, it's almost like, it it's almost like constantly traumatized, you know, because you're either in fight yeah. or flight or you're in that, like, you know, that disassociate, like, you know, you're shutting down and binging Netflix or you're, you know, so bottom line, Running here's crazy, what it is. you know, so life, life is hard. Yeah. Life is hard. Shit's going to happen. And that's okay because you're human. And the big capital A and D and it doesn't have to be that hard. It's only as hard as you make it to some extent. Mm. But when you offer yourself that wisdom with the self-compassion to say, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. How can I respond, not react to this moment? Because that is within my control. Yeah. And that's just building a practice. And that's what I do with I my clients. There's, there's also um there's also sort of like a belief system, right? And we're kind of hardwired with our belief systems from an early age too. But I think those are things, all of those are things that we can change with repetition and meditation and 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 uh you know, for me, a, a core belief system for me that has really helped me is just this belief that the earth is is here to create life you know to get to inspire us to grow so everything that happens whatever happens all of the things that earth is creating is really the intention is to nurture us to grow yeah and that's what life is that's what the earth is that's what this world is and so when i start seeing seeing the world like that all the things that might seem negative challenge are really just a way for to help me grow. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of that perception. If you can see the world with that perception, if you can breathe through that moment, that pain, that suffering, breathe through this moment where your kid is throwing a temper tantrum and see it as an opportunity mm -hmm. to grow an opportunity to learn something. Okay. Well, what, Am I not seeing? Because I'm having this emotional reaction now. I'm feeling this negative emotion or I'm feeling this pain or I'm feeling this problem. So yeah. now what, what can I do to grow? Can I, can I end with a visual that is my, one of my most favorite visuals because I think visuals are powerful in how we learn things. Yeah. Because this is described exactly what you were just saying. 
So 100%, we can rewire those belief patterns. Well, it starts with the belief that we can change, number one. So we've got to have a mindset that's open towards growth and possibility. But we get really stuck. We're human. So I like to give the visual of a snowy field. Okay. So imagine you approach this snowy field and you want to get across to the other side. And there is one really, really, really well-established path across the snow. It is so well-established that there's like snow embankments 10 feet high on either side. So anytime you approach this field, this is the obvious path you walk down. However, the problem is you don't like the way you feel as you're walking this path and you get to the other side and you're like, I'm not really where I want to be. So every time you approach the snowy field, you have a choice. I can walk down this well-established path, not liking how I feel, not liking where I am ending up, or I can consciously make a choice and start a new path. Now, at first, that's going to be really, really hard. It's going to be cold and wet and sloshy, and you're going to sink three feet into the snow. But with awareness and compassion and intention and attention, every time you approach this snowy field and you make a conscious choice to create this new path, one that's in alignment, right? eventually it'll become a well-established pathway in which you'll feel good walking down. And when you get to the other side, you're going to be like, oh my God, I enjoy where I'm at. The more you consciously choose that new path, guess what happens to the old one? It's going to get snowed over. So literally that snowy path and creating the new pathway is literally what neuroplasticity is, mm-hmm. which is a newer belief system in neuroscience, not only about 40 years, that we actually can rewire our brain and our habits and our patterns. But it takes awareness to recognize I'm walking on a path I don't want to be going down. Oh, but I have a choice. That's the conscious intention, right? So awareness, when I said mindfulness is awareness, attention, intention. Awareness of I approach the path, I need to get across. There is one path. I don't want to go there. Awareness, paying attention. Oh, that's typically the way I go, but I don't like how I feel. It's a habit. Consciously choosing the new path. That's literally our brain rewiring for whatever you want it to be. It's possible. Thank you so much, Jory Rose. So great to have you and to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, I could talk to you for hours there. Thank meditation, you me. um, walking this, the new snowy path. I love it. And uh, joryrose.com and, you know, your books on Amazon, of course. Yes. Thank you again. Thank you. Wonderful to connect.